Tonight, if you turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 8, we're drawing near the end. We're getting down to the final two chapters tonight, chapter 8. Next week will be our worship Wednesday, so uh, we'll have a a worship break, and then the following week we'll finish up uh, this little book here in the Minor Prophets with major implications for our world And as I share with you tonight in something I was not going to broadcast, because frankly, I kind of am tired of people just coming because they hear some specific thing and, you know, they want to find out what that's all about. So those that aren't here tonight will just have to get the CD or go online, but I am going to uh, fill you all in because I keep getting asked the question, what about the blood moons? We happen to have that passage of Scripture tonight that actually begins to put those in view. And so to set the stage for that, uh, here in chapter 8, I want to remind you that Scripture speaks very authoritatively about our past, our present, and in this case, very much the future of the world. And as we look at Scripture as a whole, and we look specifically at the prophetic Word of God, there was almost always a near-term fulfillment. We're going to see tonight that certainly Amos was speaking of the Assyrian invasion, but he uses the phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament to describe a time that's yet to come, and that phrase is in that day. And it speaks forward into the future, into a time that we know is the time of Jacob's trouble, the, the time of the Gentiles will have come to an end. The age of grace will have come to a close. And the great tribulation of days will ensue. The church will be raptured, of course, prior to that. And so there will come a point in time when God is going to unfold on this earth um, His very last day's plans. And as these things unfold before us tonight, I would just cause you to... Uh, take stock in what's going on in our world right now. And it is an amazingly tenuous situation that exists globally. Uh, we, we have set in place things that at a moment's notice, one single nutcase with their finger on a button, and the world could be in World War III. And so... Uh, What I will share with you tonight, I will preface right here and right now, I am not date setting. I think it's foolish, I think it is also unbiblical to do so. But I am telling you that it's more than coincidence uh, that we're focused in on this particular book at this particular time, in a time when uh, we're about to see something happen uh, that has not happened for a while, and the last several times it's happened, it's resulted in major news in the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so tonight, Amos chapter 8, and a somber sermon. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time in your word. Lord, it's your word. Uh, you authored it. You took this sheep herder, this gatherer of sycamore fruit from Tekoa, and gave him this word to preach to a group of people that he didn't even live near. Lord, those that were in the northern kingdom, the kingdom closest to the onslaught of the Assyrian army. And so, Lord, tonight uh, we sit 2,800 years later on the brink 
of quite possibly when Amos was really speaking, that these events were before his eyes in the heavenlies. And so, God, we ask you to speak to us with clarity. We pray that there would be no sensationalism. We pray that your people would receive your word gladly, for it is the power uh, to change us. It is eternal. It's life-transforming. And, Father, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, as Hebrews 4 says. And so, God, we ask you to sharpen us to receive and cause us to use these things for your glorious purposes while we await the sound of the trumpet. Lord, for us to go home to be with you forevermore. Lord, we praise you. We thank you. We ask all this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Verse 1 here in the 8th chapter of the book of Amos. Thus says the Lord God who showed me, Behold, a basket of summer fruit. Now, I don't know whether you all have the affinity for the summer fruits as I do, but the summer fruits are my favorite fruits. The peaches, the nectarines, the plums, the things that ripen in the summer. But can I share with you, there's, there's a hideous thing about summer fruits. They're summer fruits, and you cannot get them the rest of the year that taste worth a bean because they're summer fruits. And when they're ripe, they're ripe, and you can't preserve. You can can them. You can turn them into jams and jellies and all kinds of wonderful things. But summer fruit must be consumed in its tree-ripened state during the summer. Otherwise, it gets pretty gooey pretty fast. Amen? And so... Uh, here we, we have this vision that this helps us understand. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And so I said, uh, a basket of summer fruit. And so it's very clear that the Lord was speaking uh, in, in a vision to Amos. And he says, so what do you see? He says, a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel and I will not pass by them anymore. When you see a basket of summer fruit, and it's followed by a phrase, the end has come upon my people Israel, you can be pretty certain of what the Lord is speaking. That there will come a time in the history of the children of Israel that if God says their summer fruit, their time is up, we use the phrase, ripe for judgment. Amen? You may have used that in your life. I certainly used it in my mind. It is one of those things that we can think of, that, that time has passed, the things that need to occur have occurred, those things which should be in view are in view, and so the time has come. And when that time has come, and he makes very clear here with this allegorical statement that it's summer fruit, it's ripe, done, and I won't pass by them anymore. And that phrase that's used there, rendered from the Hebrew, literally means I will bestow no more upon them my goodness. I won't pass by them. It, it is a companion passage to when Moses saw the shadow of the Lord on Mount Sinai. The Lord simply passed by. But the glory of the Lord shone in the passing. And so you can see how the Lord is saying, I'm leaving I'm passing by, and I'm not going to do this again. 
And so he says, the songs of the temple shall be wailing, notice and circle, in that day. So in the future, when the Assyrians would come, it would be true. And looking forward in that day, during the time of the tribulation, the very last days, as God winds down his prophetic clock, in that day wailing shall occur, says the Lord. And you can see and begin to see how certainly it was true during the time of the Assyrian invasion because they were brutal, they were merciless. They left dead bodies everywhere, many dead bodies everywhere. And remember, this is in light of this basket of fruit. He's saying, man, the fruit's ripe, It's now it's rotten, it's gone, it's been passed by, and that's all there is to it. And they shall be thrown out in silence. One of the saddest things is when you go to a summer peach tree and, you know, you've eaten all the peaches. You've had peach cobbler and peach pie and peach shakes. And you've put peaches on your cereal and you have taken, you've worn peaches as earrings. You've got peaches till you can't stand any more peaches. And you go to the peach tree and you just have to watch them drop on the ground. Birds have gotten to them, the sun's kind of cooked them, and there they are, thrown out in silence. And so you can see the picture that the Lord's making, and notice he's talking about Israel. Though he's using this picture of a basket of fruit, he's making it very clear who he's talking about. You see, he's probably speaking just like our summer peaches, uh, of that temple that was at Bethel that Amaziah presided over. They had continued to just forsake the Lord. He spoke to them over and over again. You keep going the same direction. Time's ripe. But he's also speaking forward into the future. And he's going to then go on and describe a few things that did not occur at that time, but that God said will occur at some point in time, and he couches it with the phrase in that day and so I believe those things are on the horizon and so it goes on to say hear this you who swallow up the needy you know it it is a pretty sobering experience to have the Lord call you out on your faults amen Uh, you know you maybe you guys have never done anything to where the Lord has called you out on your faults I have I've received, I've gotten some whoopings from the Lord. He chases those who he loves. So if he hasn't whooped you, I'd question whether he loves you or not, just to let you know. Uh, it, it, is, it, it is not a good thing, but it does tell you where you stand. And so the Lord says to them, Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail. Again, there there always seems to be an attention that the Lord has towards those who are in need. Uh, he doesn't cast them out. He doesn't tread them under. And he certainly would not do that, as we have seen, while people are dwelling in their ivory palaces. One of the tragedies of the day and time and the age that we live in is, is if you really, and I'm not talking about wealth redistribution here, like a certain person who occupies the White House, whose name shall be unknown. I'm not talking about that, neither is your Bible. 
Your, your Bible is talking about having the capacity to take care of the needy and the poor and being so focused on wealth, the accumulation of wealth, prosperity, uh, the, the prevalence of those things in society, because that was the case here, that when you get to that place and you're able to look at the poor, the needy, the destitute, and do nothing, you are in grave danger because God cares about the poor. God cares about the needy. And if you're not doing something about it for him, you're awaiting his judgment. He's done it throughout history. He has judged every nation, including his own people, Israel, for failing to take care of the needs of the poor. And so am I saying we're not? No, we happen to actually believe in this church that we need to do that, and we do do that. And we do that specifically because it's a command of the Lord. In fact, your Bible says, how can you see your brother in need and harden your heart towards him and say that the love of God dwells in you? The answer is you can't. You can't. Because it is so like Jesus to want to take care of people who have need that if you're not taking care of people who have need, then you're probably not that much like Jesus. It's just a simple statement of the fact that we're transformed as God's people. And at this day and time, they didn't hear it. They wouldn't hear it. Saying, and notice the picture here, they went right about their own religious ways. When will the new moon be passed so that we may sell grain? They're basically looking at their next harvest, their next crop, their next bank account, their next uh, check coming in, whatever you want to call it. They're saying, man, I can't wait until it comes in. And the Sabbath that we made, you see what they're doing? And this was typical of the Jewish people. There were, you could not barter, you could not trade, you could not carry a burden, you could transact no business on the Sabbath. Matter of fact, you had to limit the Sabbath day's journey to what you could carry in your hands. And if you could not carry, if it had to go on your back or it had to go on a beast of burden, you couldn't carry it on the Sabbath. And so he says, you're waiting for the Sabbath because you couldn't carry enough in your hands to make any money. You wanted the Sabbath to pass so that you could make more money because you could carry more stuff. Get the picture? Kind of sounds a whole lot like the Western world, doesn't it? And I'm including Europe in that, and I'm including Israel in that. Israel has the world's ninth largest economy. They may have less than 2% of the world's population. That's if you include the 5 million Jews that live in the U.S. But they have a large percentage of the world's economy. Making the epath small and the shekel large. <laughs> you realize what they're saying. They're basically saying, well, we'll just shrink down the size of the basket. We'll call it an epath and it'll still get the same. Actually, it'll get a little more money. They're cheating. They're depriving people. Falsifying the scales by deceit that we may buy the poor for silver. You see, if you offered up a slave's offering, which was seven shekels, 
30 shekels if they were a male slave and then they were strong, but 7 shekels for a poor slave. What they were saying was is people's value decreased. It was a time when people didn't matter much. And the needy for a, look at this, for a pair of sandals. I've shared with you before some of my journeys in South America, and, and many of you have had these experiences. You know, and, and let's be honest. I'm guessing that I personally have probably 10, 15 pairs of shoes, something like that. I will not go into what you ladies have, okay? It's a lot more than that, most of you. Us guys, we buy shoes because we like the way they fit or the old ones smell bad. <laughs> but but we, we kind of have an affinity for shoes. As you travel around the world, it is very common to see people wearing mismatched shoes. They're not even the same type of shoe. They're not a matching pair. Furthermore, it is very common to see a left shoe on a right foot and a right shoe on a left foot. That's the rest of the world, folks. It's very common to see no shoes. It's common to see all manner of things wrapped around feet that purport to be shoes. But in this day and time... They were looking at needies having needy people as having the same value as a pair of shoes. You want to see the silliest thing with regard to the way we live here in America. I challenge you, go to Goodwill or Salvation Army, any thrift store, and you see how many pairs of shoes get dropped off at those thrift stores. Hundreds, thousands of them. Perfectly good. They're no longer the right color. They're out of style. They smell bad. (laughs) Imagine trading somebody's life for a pair of those shoes. That's a sad state of human affairs. And so he raises his voice here. And and basically, he's denouncing the greed for gain. The greed for taking the food off the table of the needy. He wasn't talking about honest business. He was talking about taking advantage. It's a sad state of affairs. I was watching a program a couple of months ago on the Discovery Channel. And frankly, about the last thing in the world I would like America to become is like Europe. Okay? Just, I'm just telling you straight up. Got no desire to be like Sweden. They brag about the fact that their national workday now is 35 hours a week. They brag about the fact that they only work 11 months out of the year. Now, you may be sitting there going, yeah, bring it. But you know why? Because they have redistributed wealth. They've just taken from one group of people and given it to another group of people. That's not what's being talked about here. 
What's being talked about here is people recognizing that we have a moral obligation before God to take care of people who are less fortunate. We do not have a moral obligation to take care of people who are lazy. Matter of fact, your Bible says a man who doesn't work shouldn't eat. Talking about legitimately people who are destitute and poor. And in our country, we don't take care of the legitimate destitute and poor. We redistribute wealth and give it to people who won't work. That's not a good thing. And it's never boded well for any civilization ever in the course of human history. So the Lord says... Verse 7, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. He looks at, now this is a specific one of the twelve children. Amen? This is, this is Jacob. It's speaking of the entire north, all ten tribes. The pride of Jacob. And it wasn't a good kind of pride. It wasn't pride in accomplishment. It wasn't pride in their spiritual life. It was that they were prideful in and of themselves. We're, we're it. Surely I will never forget any of their works. I want you to notice the seven I wills here. Not a good thing when God says in a negative context, I will. And then he says something about your character or what he's going to do to you. That's a bad thing. Because the number seven, of course, is a number of completion. It means that the sum and the total of what you have now brought upon yourself is, is come to fruition. It's going to bear fruit. The fruit is on the tree. It's rotting on the tree. It's dropping to the ground. And I will do now what I promised I would do. I will not forget any of their works. Shall the land not tremble for this? Notice how it's tied directly to the land. What is the one thing that Israel is being asked to give up right now? A land. It's been their problem all along, hasn't it, for 2,000 years. Land. So much so that we have said about them, they have gone through the diaspora. They've been kicked out of their own land, and they have been wayfarers, sojourners, people without a land. When you disrespect God, he says, your land shall tremble. And everyone mourn who dwells in it. You see, you can have prosperity and still be mourning. You don't believe that. Look at America shortly before the Second World War. America was on the rise. The Industrial Revolution has come about. We've survived the First World War. We're, we're on this climb, and all of a sudden, here in the midst of this prosperity, a world war that claims somewhere around a half a million American lives and 40 million lives of other people during that conflict. Hmm. All of it shall swell like a river and heave and subside like that river in Egypt, speaking of, of course, the Nile. And notice verse 9, it shall come to pass in the midst of these I will statements. 
It shall come to pass in that day. Speaking of the Assyrian invasion and looking forward to the time of Jacob's trouble. Says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon. And I will darken the earth in broad daylight. That would be an eclipse. I will turn your feasts into mourning. Anybody know what the name of the actual war was that Israel fought in 1972? was the Yom Kippur War. It was launched on the Day of Atonement. Think about it while we continue on. And all of your songs into lamentation, and I will bring sackcloth on every waist. If you were really having a bad day, you could wear sackcloth in a religious sense all the way up to your neckline. It actually was supposed to reach up to the underneath side of your chin so that as it rubbed on your neck, it became especially irritating. It was actually part of the whole process. And then the ashes were put on your head. It was a sign that you were in deep distress. But if it was really, really, really deep distress, you would strip the sackcloth away from your shoulders and you would drop it to your waist, thereby exposing yourself. It was the sign of the worst kind of mourning that there was. It's kind of like when Blake Griffin tore his jersey a couple of games ago. It's real similar. It's like, ah! Had to figure out some way to get basketball into all of this. March Madness and all. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. Doesn't mean you're cursed if you're bald, by the way. <laughs> Just saying. And I will make it like mourning for an only son, and its end like a bitter day. Now, I, I, if someone told me that and they were being, you know, serious towards me, I'd be going, <gasps> really? The strange part is. They didn't receive it. They went right on their way like Amos had never spoken a word. And yet God said, I will never forget. It's a terrible thing to have our sins, national or otherwise, brought before the face of God. Just directly after this, King Jeroboam II died. A military coup succeeded him, and then another one after that. Uh, ultimately, Rezin, the king of Syria, the Syrio-Ephraimatic alliance, would be aligned against the Davidic alliance of, of the people of Israel, uh, as recorded in Isaiah. Rezin would rise up and... After that, Tilgath-Pileser would come in and destroy the Jews. This was just a terrible time, historically, for the Jewish people. And so they could have looked at that and said, Wow, you know, maybe we ought to get right with God. 
You remember right after 9-11, every church in America was full? It's been estimated that church attendance went up by at least 30% during the year directly after 9-11. You know what it's done ever since? It's declined past where it was a year after 9-11. So it steadily went up. It's gone all the way back down to where it's slightly below where we started. That's the shortened memory of people who don't want to hear what the word of the Lord says. Now, admittedly, it's not pleasant at times hearing that God has this other side to him, which we don't like. I like the gracious side of God. I'm pretty sure all of you do, too. I love God's grace, and I love his mercy. I love his kindness and his forgiveness, and his gentleness and his meekness, and the way he exercises self-control over my life. Because he could fry me if he wanted. He'd be right, too. I absolutely deserve anything God wants to dish out on me, I deserve. I can tell you that. I'm pretty sure most of you, if you walk with the Lord for a while, you would say, Amen. I deserve it. Can I also remind you that he has actually promised that he will pour out his wrath on this earth one day? He said, I'm going to. Not I might. Not I will. And maybe not. I will, and it is so, and thus it shall be, for he has said it. Verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send famine into the land, not a famine of bread, nor for thirst of water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. You know why we call the 400-year period between the final book, Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, Matthew? Do you know why we call that the intertestamental period? Because God had no prophet, God had no judge, God spoke not to the children of Israel for 400 years. Anybody know what one of the great signs of the very last days is regarding the church? God will not have a voice in the world. There will be a great falling away and apostasy will come upon the land. Men will heap up for themselves teachers of their own making, your Bible says. They will no longer heed the truth but will have itching ears to hear what they want to hear. And they shall wander from sea to sea. You remember what the result of the diaspora was? Jewish people wandered from sea to sea. So much so that were it not for the Jewish population in the United States of America, we're not really certain that the Jews would have actually survived the Holocaust. There were so few of them at the end of the Second World War, were it not for those who were in America, they may have not actually had sufficient population to actually repopulate. And from north to east. 
They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. Not a good thing when God stops speaking. And it's not a good thing when the pulpits of America go silent. When the things that are clearly defined in God's word are no longer spoken from the pulpit, that nation is in big trouble with God. And I believe that's where we are today. And I don't mean to be an alarmist here or to you know, bum anybody out. But the fact of the matter is, pulpits of America are getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and not brighter and brighter and brighter. It's hard to find churches that teach any more than 15 or 20 minutes anymore. And when they do, it shows you about how you can feel good about yourself. They're certainly skipping all the passages that we've been covering. And that's not to boast about what we do here. That's simply to say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I don't need to question what God said. God said it, that's enough for me. They won't find it. Notice how he says again, just in case you're missing it, in that day, the fair virgins, the strong young men, shall faint from thirst. I I can tell you from having been a camp director for two decades, you put strong young men and good-looking young ladies together, and they can go all day, all night, all week. They don't need sleep. They don't need food. What God's saying is even the natural occurrences of humankind will be put to the test in that day. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and so the the calf God that was worshipped in Dan is brought forth. Dan was at the headwaters of the Jordan River, Tell Dan is still there today. It's one of the largest Canaanite structures left in the world. You can go there today and wander around the Canaanite walls. You can go up on top and see the sacrificial altars. You can travel through that area and witness exactly what was being spoken of. Those places were huge at that time. Stones that were 50, 60 tons used to make those walls up. And they thought they were okay. Had the Dan River, the tributary of the main tributary of the Jordan flowing right to the city, permanent water supply. Go wherever you want to go, do whatever you want to do. Beautiful region. Caesarea Philippi, just a few miles up the river. We're okay. Look, we've got a fortified city. I mean, nobody's going to attack us. We got a permanent water supply. You look at the Dan River. This is a nice, nice river. Made me want to go fishing. When God says it's done, it's done. It doesn't matter how fortified your cities are. It doesn't matter how well prepared you are for the eventuality of a natural disaster. In case you didn't know it, the San Andreas Fault's right at the bottom of the mountain. 
which every seismologist on the face of the earth is saying, we're way past due for a good seven, eight-point earthquake on the San Andreas. When things start shaking, I don't care how well you build your bridges. Don't care how well you build your skyscrapers. When God says it's time, it's time, period. He can cause things that there's nothing we can do about. And so he says, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, Beersheba was in the south, and it was considered a way of life. If you live there, it's just this wonderful existence. They shall fall and never rise again. So if you go today, you know what you find at Dan? A whole bunch of rocks. You know what you find at Beersheba? A whole bunch of rocks. Oh yeah, there's an Arab city there. And a whole bunch of rocks. Basically, what they had begun to believe was their own words. The Jews had substituted the Talmud. Talmud was the interpretation of the rabbis based on what they thought Scripture was trying to say. The Tanakh, the Torah. Torah, the first five books. The Tanakh, what we would call the Old Testament. It was actually made of 24 books. They condensed First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles. All of the minor prophets were actually one book. So there were 24 books. And they condensed all that down really to the Talmud. It's like, you don't need to know that. We'll just tell you what it says. And it says, you're going to be fine. Kind of sounds like the world we live in. You don't need your Bible. Don't bother bringing that to church. You're going to be fine. We're going to give you a seminar on you know, just how to really make the best of life. And basically the prophet was saying, don't believe it, the end is coming. There was an earthquake, there's darkness, and it appears that that darkness is very clearly speaking of an eclipse there in verse 9 kind of pictures this funeral of just these things and their way of life falling by the wayside. And there was a judgment of famine. And basically what he's saying is, look, you, you guys brought this on yourself. Your sin there in Samaria has brought us to a time and place where God is simply going to do what God is going to do. And there's no stopping it. The bodies are going to be heaped up. The cities are going to crumble. There's going to be rubble left. Because you guys won't repent. Now the reason I'm telling you that is to set the stage for what will follow. You, you never want to make God say, I will. You, you just don't want to back God into a corner. And you know, our, our world is so in God's face right now. And so many of the people that I talk to, they even know what God's word says. And yet they'll, they'll look me right on. I don't care. I think it's a story. I think it's a fable. I think it was okay then, but it's not okay now. I think it was their limited understanding. I hear this phrase all the time. It was their limited understanding of ancients. You know, 
So God was limited in his understanding as he wrote to ancients, is what you're telling me. So God is no longer relevant. Isn't that what you're telling me? That's exactly what Karl Marx said, by the way. God's no longer relevant. We don't need him. Anybody know how that worked out for Russia? Soviet Union? Didn't work so well. The reason that they're having the problems they're having now is they're still largely godless. So you can bring democracy to a people, but without a biblical foundation for that democracy, without a God-fearing, someday I'm going to answer to someone other than the Tsar or someone other than the president, without there being someone that everyone answers to, then all of those human systems ultimately won't hold water. And so, we find ourselves at a time when you and I can say, hmm, what's next on the horizon? So, for those of you that have asked, what about this? Some of you, and I, I will tell you straight up, please do not go buy John Hagee's book, The Coming Blood Moons, okay? John Hagee, uh, though I believe he knows the Lord, I will say that, is also quite heretical in many of his beliefs. And so uh, I'm just going to tell you straight up. He's a word faith preacher. Basically, you say it, you speak it, God's got to bring it. That's one of the things that he also believes there's dual covenants. There's one for the Gentiles and one for the Jews. And last time I looked, there's only one name under heaven whereby men may be saved. So I'm going to have a little problem with that. So please don't. I'm going to save you the trouble. And I'm going to give you a little bit of what going on. Did some research and specifically from a couple of guys that go to Hebrew University. Um, they are both Christians. They've both written on the subject extensively and so I want to share with you a little bit about what's going to be happening here in the next couple of months because you probably have all heard well, you know, there's blood moons coming. And that's absolutely true. There are. And I want to share with you a little bit about what's going on. Here's an interesting thing from the Jewish Talmud, that a lunar eclipse was a bad omen, considered a bad omen for Israel, and a blood moon, a lunar eclipse, and a solar eclipse at the same time was a bad omen for the world. And so I kind of want to look at the history in these remaining minutes that we have together of what's happened when these things have occurred. There are certain things that you must understand when we talk about this specific issue. There's two things very specifically that you must understand. One is you're not just talking about a blood moon by itself, but you're talking about successive blood moons that fall very specifically on Jewish high holy days. And so that is all we're concerning ourselves with. Because if you're looking for blood moons, they happen quite frequently. But they don't happen repetitively, and they almost never happen two in one year, two in the following year, and they almost never, never, never happen two in one year on Passover and Sokut and Passover and Sokut in two successive years. It's actually only happened seven times in the course of human history. And so as we look at what that is, basically these red moons that fall on the on a Jewish feast are extremely rare and tracing it back to year 1 AD so when the Lord was born there have been exactly seven of these occurrences 
And so looking at the cycles of those things, that leaves us with one that's coming, and the first of which is coming on Passover a month from now. There will be another one on the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. There will be another one on Passover next year, and another one on the Feast of Tabernacles next year. Looking back over those particular events, first and second millennium, so we're talking about from AD 1 to our day and time, there have been four total lunar eclipses that have occurred on Jewish Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles, the first one in 162-163 AD. During that period of time, it was the worst persecution of the Jews up until that time. Almost 8 million Jews and Christians were killed uh, during the time of the Antonine Plague that occurred in, in the region of the Middle East and spread all the way up into Europe. Almost a third of the population of Jews in the world were killed off during the first one. The second one. Uh, happened on Passover and Yom Kippur in 795-796 A.D. Probably many of you have heard of King Charlemagne. The Holy Roman Empire was ruled by him at that time. Uh, He established a demilitarized buffer zone at that time between France and Spain, who ended the Arab invasions of the basically the continent of Europe at that time. So there was this huge event that kind of preserved some of the Jewish people's ability uh, the third one occurred in 482 and 4, uh, or 842 and 843 A.D., both again on Passover and Yom Kippur. And so again, these things are extremely rare. You can see that in that case they came up uh, less than 100 years apart. That's several times up until the fourth time. Uh, during that, that third one, the Vatican in Rome was attacked. It was looted by an Islamic invasion from Africa. And in essence, at that point in time, Christianity began to wane, uh, which ended up with what we know as the Dark Ages, which ultimately culminated with the Crusades in about the year 1000. And so from about 842 to the year 1000, you have the Crusades that swept from England uh, under the guise of Christianity, wiping out uh, what were then the Arab peoples that inhabited the Holy Land. They took back the Holy Land only to lose it events eventually to the Muslim Caliph Sahaladin. That happened on a tetrad, a quadruple blood moon. The fourth one that happened in the first millennia, the Byzantine Empire, there in 860 and 861, the Byzantine Empire defeated the Arab armies, the Battle of Alakan in Turkey. Uh, they were stopping the Islamic invasion. So up until that point in time, There was a persecution of the Jews and Christians on the first one, and then it set up, in essence, for the Christianization of Europe. And so it actually cleared the way. Those events that occurred actually benefited the Jewish people. Then we finally get to the seventh one. And so all of these are the the last three that have occurred already. Looking forward to the next one. The fifth one occurs uh, maybe in a date that you guys all know, a certain young man from Spain in 1492 sailed the ocean blue. Now you remember him. We have a holiday, Columbus Day, amen? How many of you knew that Columbus was at least half Jewish? 
he may have been fully Jewish. Columbus was a Jew. During the reign of King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, after about 200 AD, Spain became one of the main gathering points of the Jewish people. It was actually a safe haven for the Jews. And so from about 200 AD until 1492, 1492, Queen Isabella had a run-in with some Jewish shopkeepers, and she got to talking with her husband, who was the king, and they decided that they were going to kick out all Jews and all Muslims. And so we hear about in our history books the Muslim part, the Spanish Inquisition. Either convert to Christianity or die. But what you're not told is that all 200 and about 50,000 Jews who lived in Spain were also expelled. And they were expelled under horrific circumstances. All of their possessions were taken, their land were taken, their business were taken. They were left with whatever they could carry, so much so that they swallowed gold, silver, gems, coins, took them into their stomachs, and fortunately for uh, many, it actually was, was worked to their advantage, but for many it did not. In fact, when they got on the ships to get away from Spain, uh, they were taken out to sea, slid open, and those diamonds, jewels were taken from them, and they were tossed overboard. We don't read about that in history books. And so Christopher's Columbus, Christopher Columbus's diary begins this way. It's directly from his, he's a prolific writer, by the way, and a Christian. In the same month in which their majesties Ferdinand and Isabella issued an edict that all Jews should be driven out of the kingdom and its territories, in that same month they gave me order to undertake with sufficient men my expedition of discovery to the Indies. In the same month that all Jews were to be kicked out, he was a Jew. And the cataclysmic events began to unfold. And so, 1492... We don't hear about it. We don't read about it. But Christopher Columbus leaves in an extension of the diaspora. And what does he find? America, which becomes home to some 5 million Jews over the next 450 years. And so he leaves as part of that group. So that was the fifth one. The sixth one. Now you're going to start getting a little bit antsy. The next one happened... Uh, in 1949 and 50. So anybody know what happened in 1948? Um, that would be May 14th, 1948 is when the Jewish people returned to their homeland. Amen? Do you know what happened in 1949? 1949 is when they actually gained a seat in the UN. 1949 is when they actually installed their president. 1949, following 1948, was when they were attacked. You realize that less than 24 hours after the Jews were given a homeland, they were attacked by Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq. They were invaded by an army ten times their size. That was on a tetrad. Double blood moons, back-to-back events that happened on Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. These are significant events. The next one, guess what happened in 1967-68? 1967-1968, they are again attacked by the same group of people. 
this time with a much larger force. They were attacked that time uh, on the Passover and Feast of Tabernacles. The war over Israel uh, fought, so during 48-49, they gained independence, they gained a seat in the UN, and in 1967, anybody know what they got back? Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. So each time, there was this tremendous conflict, which brought about a part of their history, which caused them to be regathered into the land, which caused them to gain control over the Temple Mount. And so, what will the next one bring? During their statehood address on May 11th of 1949, as Israel took its seat as the 59th member of the UN, David Ben-Gurion stands up. If you've flown into Israel, it's Ben-Gurion Airport that's named after him. The gates of the country have been thrown open, affirming the right of every Jew to become a citizen. What has happened since? Basically, the entire world has said, Israel doesn't have a right to exist and continues to this day, including some within our own government. Now, I will tell you this, that I have no idea what's going to happen this year because we have three high holy days that these blood moons will occur on. And and the reason that I think it's interesting and the reason I think that it's worth at least pondering in our heart is because your Bible says in the book of Genesis that signs in, that the, there will be signs in the heavens and that they're given for us to know what's going on with the Lord. And so I think that they are significant. In what way? I don't know. But I know this. This year, starting next month, the first one's going to be on Passover. The second one is going to be on the Feast of Tabernacles. The third one's going to be on the Feast of Trumpets. Does that mean the trumpet's going to sound the dead in Christ? I don't know. Don't know, won't guess. Won't tell you that I do. But I believe that the Tetrad, this four blood moons that's going to happen over the next basically a little more than a year, I believe significant because every single time they have happened, something major has happened with regard to Israel. And the last three have been wars. The last three have been very painful to the Jewish people. So now looking at what Amos said, knowing that looking ahead in that day, that God is going to, again, exercise his judgment. We have a financial collapse. We have the Jewish population, at least in New York and Florida, couldn't care less about Israel. They're largely not Jewish, except in heritage. I don't think it's coincidence. I really don't. I, I know this, that Russia has invaded part of Ukraine. I know that we have a missing airliner that was taken just mysteriously by a couple of guys from Iran. And I can, again, I'm not date setting, I'm not prophesying, I'm not saying that I know or heard from the Lord, but I am telling you what Iran does not have to deliver a nuclear weapon 
is a missile that can hit Israel. But they might well have a 777 that makes a very fine delivery vehicle. Don't know. You have radical Muslims in control of Egypt. You have radical Muslims in control of Syria. You have radical Muslims in control of Lebanon. You have radical Muslims in control of parts of Jordan. You have radical Muslims in control of Iran. They are now going to have regain control of Afghanistan, and they're not very far from taking over Iraq. Your Bible says in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that in the last days that these nations will rise up headed by none other than Russia and that they will attack God's people, Israel. Is it going to happen in the next year? I don't know. But I think it's a really good time to keep your eyes on Israel. I think it's a really, really, really good time to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And of course, for the Muslims, for the Arabs, for those who are Christians in those lands that are being persecuted. Because the Jews require a sign. And God gave him a sign, the sign of Jonah. He said, no sign will be given unto you except the sign of his prophet Jonah. Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus already came the first time. He's awaiting the second return. And before he does that, he's going to snatch us who are still here away. And the reason I know that is because he told us to, in Luke 21, which we'll get to in our study in Luke, in Mark chapter 13, to be watchful. In Mark chapter 13, verse 24, it says, But in those days the sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give its light. What was the question? Can you tell us when the coming of the Son of Man is? Don't know. But the world is a crazy place. The world is a place that's making its own rules. The world is a place that is largely thumbing its nose at God. The world is a place who hates Israel. And God said, I will curse those who curse you. And I will bless those who bless you. That's why I think it is fatal to any nation. Fatal to any nation. To in any way, shape, or form come against the nation Israel. They're God's people. And to do so, I believe, is, is to ask the judgment of God upon yourself. That's what your Bible says. And so, does God use the moon for signs? Yes, He does. Your Bible says so. Luke 21, Genesis 1. Are the feasts relevant to Yahweh, Lord of hosts, and related to the moon? Yes. Leviticus chapter 23 reminds you of that. Are blood moons prophetic? Yes. We already saw that in Joel. Acts chapter 20 says it. Revelation chapter 6. So in Luke 21, Jesus said, Watch always and pray. 
that you might be able to escape. What? I don't know. But I believe what my Bible says. And if history is an indicator, could be a very interesting year and a half or so. Every single time a tetrad has fallen, specifically on Passover and Sukkot, something big has happened in the history of the Jewish people. And something very big has happened in the lives of the nation Israel since they came back into the land in 1948. So, as you watch the news, as you ponder whether Iran actually has nuclear weapons or not, as you wonder whether Iran has been arming Hezbollah, which I can tell you they absolutely have. Mark chapter 13 says, But in those days the sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give its light, and then they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Keep your eyes on heaven. Might want to buy some knee pads. You may need them. Because you ought to be praying. I, I don't know. But I know this. I'm excited. Because I know where I'm going. I know where most of you are going. I know where a large part of our families are going. So I'm pretty sure what we ought to do is be busy about our Father's business. Amen? I know that for certain. We need to be telling people about Jesus. And so if you can maybe use this little blood moon thing to open the door to talk to somebody about Jesus. Hey, have you heard about these silly uh, blood moons? And then you open them up to your Bible and you go, hmm. What was Jesus talking about? Well, he was talking about the last days. Are you ready for the last days? Because if you're ready for the last days, you have nothing to fear. But if you're not ready for the last days, you know somebody else who's not ready for the last days. I mean the last days. Not one of many, but the very end. Then right now is a really good time to get that squared away. Because you can have that certainty that if you take your last breath, the next thing you're going to see is the face of your Savior. Amen? Maranatha. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Father God, we thank you for this time tonight. Lord, pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us. Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord, which has given us a glimpse of these things. Lord, you haven't told us the day or the hour. Nobody knows that but you. But you have told us the times and the seasons and the signs. And so, Lord, we look forward to what you're going to bring about. And we pray, God, for the peace of Jerusalem. We ask for your hand to be upon your people, Israel. We pray that our government would not abandon them in their hour of need. Lord, we pray that you would watch over those who are in these lands that surround them, God, who are innocent, who are bystanders in a global sense. God, we pray for the Arab Christians who are being persecuted, the Coptic Christians in, in Egypt who are just being mercilessly persecuted. Lord, we pray for the Christians in Syria. Lord, Damascus used to be a Christian city. And Father, it sits in largely in ruin today. And we just ask, God, that you would 
be in our midst, that you'd fill us with your truth. Help us to be bold with our faith. Help us to have that answer for the hope that lies within us. Lord, when people ask, would we be able to stimulate them with your word? God, to remind them that it is truth. And so, Lord, we bless you. We thank you for this time this evening. and pray now that you'd take uh, your word and embolden us with it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.